Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. I just want to reiterate that the, the approach that I'm taking to this course, which is the basics of Buddhism, is just going through one teaching that the Buddha gave uh, that we call his first sermon um, of many, 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 many teachings. And I like going to it because I really enjoy reading the Pali Canon, which are the earliest known records of the Buddha's teachings in India. Um, so when I first trained in Theravada practice, they rely on the, the those core teachings. Uh, my primary practice nowadays is uh, Zen Buddhism, which is when Buddhism leaves to China and then Korea and Japan, and goes through a whole reworking, and doesn't isn't completely in line, actually, with the Pali Canon. They're actually at odds in many many ways. Um, but I think it's good to go to the Pali Canon because I think when we say things like, what did the Buddha teach? I think it's good to rely on those early teachings from India. But if you want to say, what do they teach in you know, Japanese Zen in the Soto school, then it's good to look there. So, so that's the approach, because some of you might know my teaching, and in another night I can be saying exactly the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> But I think uh, there's uh, fewer and fewer people, it seems, who have uh, spent time really reading a lot of the Buddha's early teachings, and they're really, really fabulous. And they tend to undo, like, some people say that when they've learned in various traditions and they go back to early Buddhism, they have to undo everything they learned. <laughs> so, anyways, I mentioned that for those of you who have learned in another tradition like me. <laughs> how, how do you really uh, open to, to what's going on right now? Sound in here? Uh, what your body feels like right now? And then to see that, oh, your mind is saying to yourself what your body feels like. But actually, you don't have a body. There's just sensations. If you close your eyes and you just become aware of what's happening, 
you're not aware of sensations in a body. They're just sensations. And then the mind adds to it, oh, and they're in my body. And if your eyes are closed, you get to see like an image of your body, which is probably inaccurate. It's probably a body more from like the yoga journal or a fashion magazine. And then sensations appear. It's like they just spread out. And then we, uh, when we feel sensations that are outside of our habitual range of sensation, you know, like a deeper sadness or maybe... How many of you practice yoga? You know? So, yeah, even just putting your hand up is a yoga pose. So then you're in a yoga pose and you have all these new patterns of sensation and the mind comes in. The mind is like a tourist and it's always taking pictures of the situation to get a context. Or it's like taking sticky notes and putting them on the sensations which then decide if you like them, if you don't like them, what memories and what associations are connected to sensations. So that the power of mindfulness practice, the power of meditation is opening up just to raw sensation before we even decide what it is. And this takes many, many years. And when you can just open up to raw sensation, then the sensation falls back into its background, which is not even sensation, it's just the natural world. But it's not even that. So then you can experience just sensation as like pure prana. And before it's even sensation, right? Before it's even objectified as sensation. You see? And so the, this, this path of meditation has many levels, and the levels, though, are taking you deeper and deeper and deeper into actually the experience of your life. But most of us are living up here, just like fixing things, managing things. I call this the solution level, like just always finding solutions to everything in our life. So what I'm interested in is a practice that's way beyond beliefs. That's deeper than a belief system. And I see in so many students how the belief system just gets in the way of the practice. Their belief about themselves, their belief about the universe, their belief even about the Buddha. Because you you are what, what you seek. It's not separate from you. So this brings in this issue of fully knowing suffering, which is not just fully knowing suffering. It's just, you know, fully opening to our experience. Joy, deep joy. How many of us sometimes have a hard time feeling really good, like real deep joy? It's like you start feeling good and then you distrust it. It's like, you know. Let me go back to Nietzsche again. You know. <laughs> um, so h- how do we become intimate, you know? Intimate. It's really interesting. On Tuesday nights right now, we're studying a Japanese text by a teacher named Dogen. And the word he uses for meditation in Japanese is mitsu, which actually means a tightly woven cloth or intimacy. And I love, I'm, you know, I've been talking about it for two weeks already. Right? <laughs> it's like this idea of meditation as intimacy. 
So actually being intimate with our lives. So that's not about a belief system, you see. And that's why this term appropriate seeing is so important for those of you who ask about this term appropriate. That, 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 that the way you see is not, in yoga we call this vidya. The way you see is not fixed. It's open, it's free. Even sensation. So this, this, is, this is what the Buddha woke up to. Freedom. This is freedom. So, more questions or comments? I'm hoping you're going to take this home and really study with it. If you don't get, maybe maybe we'll get the email list from the night and we'll resend it to everybody. More questions or or comments about what I've said? We we have 15 minutes. If you do that, yeah. You have some books or things that you think are good. I mean, you talked about a lot of the stuff that you wouldn't read. Yeah. It's just a couple, one or two. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Just curious. Okay. Yeah. If you send this out by email. I think I'll, I'll just mention two books right now. Yeah. If you're looking for a really good book on Buddhist terms to understand the basics, uh, my favorite is called Buddhism Without Beliefs by Stephen Batchelor. Who many of you know because he comes and teaches here every year. Um, if you're uh, looking for... Uh, uh, a, a book about kind of a contemporary understanding of what the Buddha taught, then there's an author named Richard Gombrich, and he has a whole series of new books. Uh, one I really like is called What the Buddha Thought. So, so that's, that's an, an option. Okay. So, yes, Sarah. Can you just speak up a little bit? Sorry, right? parallels between the Eightfold Path here and the Eight-Limb Path in No. I've tried so hard <laughs> to, to make those parallel, and they're not. Yeah. Likely the Buddha came first. And my only reason for saying that is uh, to back that up is that there's so many places in the Yoga Sutra written by Patanjali that he lifts exact references from the Pali Canon, from the Buddha's teaching, like the Brahma Viharas. There's many examples, um, like Shunyata. Um, But... um, when you go back before the Buddha to try and see the Buddha's references, there were many things that are very new that the Buddha taught, which is, I think, what made him radical. It's a rather academic question, but I'm very curious how uh, um, Ananda's Ananda? Ananda's teachings were preserved. I mean, from sixth uh-huh. century. That's yeah. when do we have texts? Yeah. That are in you know. Yeah. I just, it's a hard question for the Greeks. Uh-huh. But I just 
and it, it raises all sorts of questions about the validity of them and sort yeah. of like the tradition that evolved from it. So. Yeah. Read Richard Gombrich. Okay. Yeah. Also, I mean, one of the amazing things, and those of you interested in yoga, it's the same thing, where there's this text, right, this, these sutras that have never been written down, and then they appear in different parts of the world, and they're identical. Like the two yoga sutras are one line off from each other. Um, the, the Chinese canon um, is the same as the Pali canon. Um, how is this possible? So, you know, it's pretty amazing. At the same time, I also have to say, like, the way we learn a lot of texts here in our intensives is we chant them. And it's like Sanskrit's really easy. And you can chant a text and it's like, it just sounds good. And then you memorize it. And then it, you don't have to carry the big, like, Murakami book around. You just memorize it. So I actually think memorization might be a lot easier in Sanskrit and in Pali than in English. Let's hear questions about your life, (laughs) except for this one. This is a bit of a dry question. I just was wondering if there's like, just to understand a very, very brief understanding of, of how it changed or spread. You're referring to Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, yeah. Buddhism and like what 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 changed just very like uh-huh. Okay, that comes under Buddhism basics. Uh bu- Buddhism um first of all there's no such thing as Buddhism. The word Buddhism is hundred and sixty years old. It was invented by a German academic. Uh if you go to a Buddhist country, nobody talks about Buddhism, they talk about the Dharma or in Pali, the Dhamma. So the Buddha taught the Dhamma. In the West, we called it Buddhism. But there is no such thing as Buddhism. Um, So the Buddha never taught Buddhism. Um, The Buddha taught the Dhamma, which is how how things are. Um, And, which is a very important point, I think. Um, uh, about 600, 500 years after the Buddha dies, uh, Buddhism starts spreading to um, uh, the south of India, to Pakistan, um, and the area that we would call Iraq and Iran. Um, and Buddhism undergoes a major change as it moves into those cultures is they develop something called the Bodhisattva path, which is uh, replacing the idea of nirvana as uh, transcendence with a sense of um, um, the practice as waking up to the interconnectedness of life and so serving others. In other words, the focus in those countries becomes not on one's personal practice, but on the fact that if we're all interconnected, then everything you do makes a difference. So if other people are suffering, you can't be free. If someone is imprisoned, you're imprisoned. 
right down to the last blade of grass. So your practice is motivated by other beings. And this is our primary teaching here. And and this becomes, this is called Mahayana. The Mahayana, the large vehicle. Um, and that teaching is what goes to China. And they take the word for meditation in Sanskrit, dhyana. And in Chinese, that word is chan. And in Japanese, that word is zen. And those teachings then developed as Mahayana Buddhism Buddhism in China, Korea, and Japan. And then Buddhism goes north through Tibet. And as Buddhism gets mixed up with Hinduism, it um, the tantric aspect of Buddhism really takes off. And then you get Vajrayana Buddhism, you get Tibetan Buddhism. And so for those of you interested in Tibetan Buddhism, you can really see the Hindu influence even just in Tibetan imagery, Tibetan Buddhist imagery. Um, And now they say is the next turning of the wheel, which is the Dharma coming to this soil. And one of the main characteristics of the Dharma coming to this, the soil in the West, it seems, is the relationship between Buddhism and social action. Um, Primarily, Uh, in Zen communities uh, in uh, the United States, the development of a Buddhist practice that's totally integrated with um, an active political life seems to be where Buddhism's really taking off. And the other place it's really taking off is in neuroscience and and psychology. Um, I've been to the to the labs at, uh, in Madison, Richie Davidson's lab in Madison, Wisconsin, and Alan Wallace's in in uh, California, and it's just amazing to see um, neuroscientists at work studying these practices who are actually practitioners. So, like twenty years ago, they were hooking up meditators, and they were like, "Oh, you know, this is the same as our theories, but let's watch it on a screen." But actually, it really doesn't look like that in the universities, in the labs. The, the people who are leading research are actually practitioners. It's really amazing. I'm thoroughly impressed by what they do. So those are the, that, that's kind of like, whoa, smearing like finger painting. You know? Yeah. Yes. You use the term practice. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, what did he say here? Appropriate seeing, <laughs> thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, concentrating. That all those are practices. That you make your work practice. You turn that into your spiritual life. So, how do I understand that? So, The way we practice here at Center of Gravity is um, there are like rings. So there's like core students who have a daily meditation practice. They come on retreats and they meet me one-on-one very often. And then there's people who uh, um, I really encourage to just practice in their places of work, in their families. And then there's people who just kind of like show up when they want because it's like a good place to meet people. That's okay too. That's also practice. Um, 
But in the heart of what we do here, one of our main teachings is is to continually take the things in your life that are really mundane and make those things sacred. So locking up your bicycle, cleaning your apartment, earning a living, like those things are the most spiritual. And then you take the things that are very esoteric, like uh, when we have more formal practice, we light incense a special way, we bow a lot, we chant in foreign languages, and we make all that stuff really mundane. So we spend a lot of time uh, doing ritual, but we treat it as just like plain mundane stuff that you just have to do. And so we kind of just flip and that way, it's religious. And when I was a kid, I grew up uh, Jewish. And one of the things I loved about Jews is they have like prayers for everything. You name it, they have a prayer for it. And I always thought this was like so beautiful, is that you can take any little thing, putting a baby in a bath, and there's a prayer for it. It's so beautiful. So... Uh, I think uh, this is how I think about religious life. So I think about what we do here as uh, religious practice, even though most people call it secular, but I don't think of it that way. Um, And so we have formal practices like sitting meditation to really learn how to work with your mind. We have body practices to really take care of your body. Uh, Every Sunday morning we have a a practice called council where we sit in a circle and we share together what's going on for us. And that's a speaking practice, to learn how to listen and speak. And then you do these formal practices so that when you go into your life, you have a practice to draw on. Some people like to say, oh, everything's practice. But I, I think it's a bit naive. I think we actually need a formal practice to really be engaged in our life in a way where there's tenderness, there's flexibility, there's compassion, there's sensitivity, and and fierceness, sharp thinking, and action, and and, and taking a stand. This is also part of our our practice. So, So... uh, a monk once asked uh, a wanderer named Basho, what's your practice? And Basho said, whatever is needed. So I like to think that when we're studying, building community, learning how to sit, facing our lives, then, then we learn how to be more responsive and spontaneous and to do what's needed. So for one person, a practice might look really kind of stiff. And they're in that phase where you need to kind of be disciplined and it's hard. And you need to, you know, stop speaking like an idiot to so-and-so. And for someone else, the practice might look really loose. You know, like stop coming on retreat and take your family on a vacation. Go lie on the beach. Learn how to, I don't know, ski or something. 
So practice. What's practice? One more. It has to be really good because this is the last. This is the last one. Okay. Well, I was wondering if um, this this dhamma yeah. can be uh, practiced for individuals uh, living in environments of violence. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? How, like, is it is yeah. it is it practical? Is it feasible? Can it be done? You can practice anywhere. Yeah. We. What's that? Ask a Tibetan that question. Ask a Tibetan that question. Yeah. Ask. uh, You know, we we work with a group that teaches uh, these practices to incarcerated youth. That works with a group called Leave Out Violence. That works with gangs. Um, you can practice this any, anywhere in your any time in your life. Um, having said that, usually when I have a student comes who's in a very violent situation, the first thing I try and do is support them to get out of there as fast as possible and find a place where they can see their situation and not just be managing it. And that's really a painful process. Um, yeah. So, so yes, you can practice this anywhere. At the same time, I think if you start really looking into these teachings like right livelihood, it becomes hard to have a job that's hurting other people. You start to feel it more and more. I see this all the time. Someone's practicing, practicing, and then as, it, so, as soon as the livelihood issue comes up, you don't see them again for a couple of years. <laughs> and then they come back again. <laughs> you can practice this anywhere. So I like to encourage students to choose the place in your life that's the most not spiritual. Right? Like that group of friends. Right? Or that particular place in the city. Like, go to the place that's the most not spiritual and practice there. Include that as your practice. Go to the place in your body. Go to the place in your body where you can't practice. You should know those places in your body where, where you can't include those places in mindfulness. And that's the next phase of your practice. Go home and hang out with your parents. (laughs) I just started a new practice this year of uh, waxing my dad's car with him. thing that brings my dad so much happiness is he just, he likes to wax his car. Actually, he also has a motorcycle. He likes to wax his motorcycle. So, like, it's not, like, so interesting to me. But so now, this year, I made it my practice that every chance I get, I go up to his house, and I help him wax his motorcycle. And it's like, I've really begun to appreciate why he loves it so much. Like, it's actually really nice. You put on some music, 
you know, there's like a whole ritual around it. He does everything but chant. Well, he chants a little too. He sings rock songs. <laughs> so anyways, anything can be practiced if, if the attention's there. You know? Even in violent situations. So. That was a pretty good introduction, I think, from, from my end. You know, we got through a lot. Uh, so the only thing I hope is that you've made a connection between these four noble truths, fully knowing your life and your life. And that this isn't just like another philosophy. Um, and um, I, I hope that there were some seeds planted and that they, they sprout up for you somehow. Usually at center of gravity we finish chanting. Would you like to do that? Yeah. And last week we did it. Well, let's do it in English this time. It's good to know what you're chanting, you know.